All right. I was looking at the clock back there. I didn't realize there was a countdown behind me, so I was ready to go. How's everybody doing? Good to see everyone tonight. Glad that the weather is permitting this evening and everyone got to be here. Um, so as we uh, continue our series on uh, Want to Know, I got some great questions this week, way more than I can answer tonight. So I'm just going to jump into it here in a second, but let's pray and then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father God, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the time you've given us, Lord. I pray as we spend this time discussing uh, the most important thing that I think we can discuss, Lord, I pray uh, that you would be glorified and you would be honored and your people would be uplifted during this time. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I got numerous questions, uh, lots. And, and in fact, what I got this time, which is interesting, uh, the last time I would get, uh, maybe I got a total of uh, 30 questions. I probably got 30 questions from about 25 people, like in the sense of maybe one person asked a couple. Uh, this time, this past week, I got about 20 questions from three people. So um, I'm going to do my best uh, but I will tell you this, that I have prepared the answer to one question tonight because it's going to take us the entire time. And frankly, we could probably talk about it for uh, the next several weeks, but I'm going to try to do my best to cover it all this evening. So we're not going to cover any of the misused, misapplied, or misquoted uh, scriptures tonight, but we're going to cover this question. And, and really, uh, to try to frame it, uh, I'm going to try to frame this in regard to um, in regard to the... I'm just going to call it the salvation question. Because I got this question a couple of times, a couple of different ways, uh, but it, it really was asking similar things. And so I felt like it was just a good idea uh, to talk about this all at once. So um, the area of theology that we will be talking about is soteriology. And, and it's just, it's, that's the doctrine of salvation and what it means uh, and what it looks like. And, and I think that many would be surprised uh, to know how... Um, complex, it, it seems to many people. And so uh, the truth is, is that while there are aspects of it that can be a little complex, I think it's also surprising to note how many truly don't understand the nature of salvation. Because most of the time what, we're at, what we ask is, do you know the gospel? And I think most of the people who have been raised in church, been around the church, especially I believe very strongly, if you've been to Eastwood, you, you can answer the question, I know the gospel, if you're a believer. And so you know the answer to, tell me the gospel. But when someone says, describe the process of salvation to me, well, that's a whole other question when you really think about it. Um, and it really is. In fact, there's an entire section in theology referred to as the ordo salutis which is latin for order of salvation and there's a whole lot of discussion a whole lot of argument about it but i'm going to tell you what it really means uh here in just a second and so i think that this question as i said even in my prayer i think this is the most important topic we could ever talk about because if if you don't get this right it doesn't matter if you get anything else right if you get this wrong it doesn't matter if you get everything else wrong you have to understand this not because it's important to know for tonight but it is because it is important to understand and know for eternity so it is in fact the most important thing we can talk about um, and the question I guess when it's all said and done uh, it, I had this question posed to me through emails and and, uh, and even a few text messages in multiple different ways but essentially um, the, the story would be similar to this. And I can go ahead and tell you before I even throw it out there, this story is very similar, if not identical, to my own story. It would be something like uh, many have had the experience of hearing the gospel when they were younger and then whatever age, but then, and then coming under deep conviction of sin later in life and wondering... So when was I actually saved? This is a question, honestly, that makes people super, super uncomfortable to even send me. That's why at least two of them were sent anonymously. I understand that. It makes you very uncomfortable. And frankly, part of us, when we ask this question, you get up enough courage to ask this question, you're kind of afraid to know the answer. But like I said, I want you to know the answer now. I want you to walk out of this room 
In the words of my, one of my favorite theologians, Tony Rogers, my father, I want you to walk out of this room knowing that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know what this means. So while I certainly believe it's important, this is not really the same question. Again, it's not really the same question um, of, of what we would call the plan of salvation. This is not uh, us asking, hey, can you explain uh, the gospel to me? That, that's not really what we're asking. Uh, because the truth is, um, we need to understand the gospel, of course, and know the gospel. And because of that, I'm about to share the gospel with you. Um, and and I, the reason I think it's so important is, well, I mean, it's a Wednesday night. We're mostly believers. First of all, uh, that is a terrible assumption to make. Second of all, you say, well, it's mostly church people. Again, still a terrible assumption to make that all people who go to church are saved. But three, to quote one very well-known pastor, we never grow beyond the gospel. We only grow deeper into the gospel. So even if you're a believer and you trust Christ and you are assured of your salvation, it's still good to hear the gospel. It's still good to hear the message of this, that you and I are born dead in our trespasses and sins. The scripture says uh, we are born that way. We are sinners, according to Adrian Rogers. We are sinners both because we sin and we, are, um, and we sin because we are sinners. We, that, that's the truth of us. We are, in all of our ways, sinners. You don't have to teach a two-year-old how to say mine. You don't have to teach a two-year-old how to be selfish. You don't have to teach them that. Why? Because they are inherently a sinner. All human beings are. We are born with a sin nature, which means we are born with a proclivity or a bent toward doing what we want, the way we want it, when we want it, to satisfy ourselves and our desires. That, that's sin in its, in its truest form. So that's how we're born. We're born and we're made that way. And because of that, the scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. So that means that from the moment we are born, we are under the sentence of death. Now, I'm not talking about, here's the deal, I do believe very clearly that children are safe um, until they come to an understanding of a place where they can understand sin and things of that nature. I, I believe it very clearly. But the Bible tells us, especially for us in this room tonight, the wages of sin is death. Which means that left in that state and never trusting Jesus Christ, left in that state, you and I will experience eternal death. We will die both physically and we are dead spiritually, which means we will spend eternity in hell. So the wages of sin is death, right? So that, that's what we know. We are under a curse from the moment we are born. And then... As the scripture says, but God, being rich in mercy and abounding in loving kindness, even showing love so much that even as while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while we are in our sin, there is no way for you and I to be right before God. Why? Because we were created by a holy God who has a perfect standard that none of us can live up to. And that perfect standard is impossible for you to work for. It's impossible for you to do enough to make yourself right before him. And so what do you need? You need the same thing I need. The same thing we all need. We need someone else to be perfect for us because we cannot be perfect in and of ourselves. And so God sent his own son because he's the only one who has the ability to be born as a human being, live a sinless life, die a death he did not deserve, that I deserve. Why? Because the wages of my sin is death. He had no sin. Right? That's the greatness of the gospel. Is that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I can become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Okay? So God sent his son because you and I cannot live up to that perfect standard. So Jesus came and he lived, and not only did he live a perfect life, but then he died a death that you and I deserve, that he did not deserve, so that you can have what is referred to as the imputed righteousness of Christ, which simply means this. It means that he took your sin on the cross, and then because of the cross, he gave you his righteousness. So that when you stand before the God of all creation, you are no longer sinful Jeremy standing in front of a holy God. You are righteous Jeremy standing in front of a holy God, but not because of anything Jeremy did, but because of the fact that Jesus gave his righteousness to me. How did he do that? He died on the cross. 
He died on the cross and paid the price for my sin that I could not pay. But then, three days later, he rose from the grave, proving that the death he died paid the price that I owed, and he was victorious over that. Also proving that he has the ability to now offer his righteousness to those who do not have it. And that passage that says, for the wages of sin is death, it also has a second half, right? The fun half. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift, though. You can have a gift that can sit under the tree uh, for days and days and days before Christmas. It can have your name on it and everything. It can have your na- you could shake it, you can move it around and everything, but it's not truly your gift until you receive it and open it. And that's what it is. It's the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. Eternal life is. But it is only if you take that gift unto yourself. So what do you do to take that gift? Well, the Bible says very clearly that what you do is you need to turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Which means to turn from living for yourself and turn this way and put your faith in, his hand, in him. You put your life in his hands. You trust him to be your leader, your master, your ruler. You do that. And the scripture says that that is salvation. That's the gospel. You can do it now. You can do it right at the moment. You say, what do I pray? It doesn't matter, actually. I know that shocks some people. It actually doesn't matter. You know, nowhere in the Bible has anyone said, now pray these words after me. Do you notice that you never see that anywhere in Scripture? I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying it's not absolutely necessary. It's nowhere in Scripture. The thief on the cross didn't pray a prayer. All he looked at him and said is, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right? That, that's the prayer. <laughs> that was his prayer. It was just a simple statement. Right? And so... If you prayed the prayer, that's fine. If you didn't pray the prayer, that's fine. Did you turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ? Did you come to a place where you recognize that through him and him alone you can have salvation? That's the gospel. Right? So that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news, right? But that's not really the question that's being asked. So we're going to come back to the gospel in a minute. And, of course, that's essential to everything. But what we're talking about is the order of salvation. Now, hopefully we'll learn this, and you, you probably do know, many of you, I'm sure, know this, but hopefully what you'll pick up over the years is, I don't know if you notice it, but every Sunday I will say something to the effect of, now you may be here this morning. You probably already picked up on that phrase. That's my, now you say to yourself, Billy. That's, that's my moment there, is Billy Graham used to always say, now you ask yourself, Billy. Well, I say, you may be here this morning and... And usually what I want to show you is these are the promises of Scripture. This is the truth of Scripture. This is how God does whatever he does. But if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, none of this applies to you. And here's how, here's why. Because you're broken and you don't receive the promises of God. But you can if you will trust in Jesus Christ. It's called the fallen condition focus. I always want to focus on the fallen condition that makes us unable to accept the truth and the the majesty of God. Okay, so that's what we talk about. But hopefully you also notice or or recognize each week, I will then say, so here is how you trust Christ. I mean, I say it that way, but I go through almost exactly what I just went through a minute ago. You turn from your sin. You turn, and it's sort of a habit. I will always do that. I will always go to the right and then the left. I I don't know why, but it's explaining that. That is all the gospel. You want to hear that? You'll hear that every single week. You say, how long? As long as I'm alive. You'll hear that every single week. Now, when we think about this, we always say, okay, but how does it happen? How does it happen? Well, the Bible actually is very clear on how it happens. Sure, there's some, some discussion about some minute points, but, but generally speaking, this is, this is how it happens. This is what we would call the order of salvation. Upon hearing the true message of the gospel, the hearer falls under conviction of their sin. Okay, so you hear the message, you fall under conviction of your sin. This is done by the activity, solely by the activity of the Holy Spirit. Not, not by the preacher, not by the words he says, but by the activity of the Holy Spirit. You say, how do I know that? Because I've seen ministers preach messages on tithing and watched people get saved. It's the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel. Okay, So... This is a, a, the, the person falls under the conviction of their sin, and this is done by the Holy Spirit. So the gospel is preached. I'm going to use Todd as an example. 
So the, I hope that's okay. So I'm going to use Todd's example. The gospel is preached, and in that moment, Todd hears the gospel, and the Holy Spirit convicts him of his sin. He recognizes, he hears that, he knows that. I have sinned, and I am broken, and I am in need. Right? John chapter 16, verses 4 through 11, Jesus said this. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your advantage. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus himself said in John chapter 16, that it is the Holy Spirit's role to convict human beings of sin. Specifically those who do not believe that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ. Okay? They don't believe in him. So the Holy Spirit convicts men and women of sin in their lives. Which basically says at that moment you feel, if, if this has happened to you, I'm a believer. I, I know, it's that moment where you truly feel the guiltiest you have ever felt in your entire life. Because you realize that God has created you. He has made everything. He has, he has done everything for you and you have done nothing but spit in his face. And yet he still offers salvation to you and you feel extreme guilt. That's the conviction of sin. You recognize that you are broken and you cannot measure up. So the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. And then upon feeling this Spirit-initiated conviction of sin, the hearer then responds in faith. So the hearer responds in faith, which is itself a gift. Okay? Say, okay, where do you get that from? Well, exactly from the passage, you said, I thought grace was a gift. Well, I actually get that faith is a gift from the exact passage you're quoting. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Okay, so, so where do you get that? Because, listen to the verse again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Right? That's the New King James. Is how I quote it when I'm not looking at the ESV. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For by grace, what does the word grace mean? It means gift. Okay. Does it sound somewhat strangely redundant to you to say, for by a gift you have been saved through faith, and that's a gift? If you're referring to grace, then it sounds like, for by, gra- for by a gift you have been saved, it was a gift. Well, duh, he just said it was by a gift. Because syntactically, verbally, the phrase, and that itself is a gift, is referring to the word faith. Okay? So by grace, by a gift, you have been saved. Through faith, which is a gift. Why? Because it can't be of works. Because if it was works, then you'd boast about it. Look what I believed in. Look what I did. Well, how do you, well because in the book of Jonah, of all places... Where do we find out salvation belongs to whom? To the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So, faith is a gift. Um, and so, both grace and faith. So he says, at this moment, you're convicted of your sin. That's a spirit-initiated act. And then you respond, and it's a true response. It, it, yes, the spirit moves, but it's a true response in the heart of a human being. You respond or you don't. But this is an act. So in that moment, you act in faith. You trust. You believe. So upon feeling that act, you, you, or that, that conviction, you respond in faith. Now, here's where some, I don't know why, but here's some, where some weird discussion comes in in regard to what happens for faith, at first, faith or repentance. Well, truthfully, according to the New Testament, neither The reason I say neither is because it actually can't happen first. The reason it can't happen first is because Paul, well, in in Mark, 
Um, Jesus says in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, okay, well he said two, but he said repent first. Okay, well, he said them, but again, syntactically, they're said as like one thing. It's not, it's not do this and then do this. It's do these. Okay, if I, if, if, well, she's walking out of the room. But if Luann told me, I was about to refer to you beforehand, sorry. So if Luann says, go to the store and get milk and get bread. She doesn't mean I have to go in the store and get milk first and then get bread. She just means when you come out of the store, you better have milk and bread. Right? Well, in this one, when he says, repent and believe, it doesn't mean do one first, then the other. Let me show you why. The word repent in, in the New Testament, metanoia. That word, it means, it literally means to turn around. Okay? So, what is faith? Well, we use phrases like, you're going to do, you're going to turn to Jesus in faith, right? So, wait. So, repentance is turning away from sin. Faith is turning to Jesus. Well, in case you, you I mean, most of us are logical. That's why I said, I don't know why this is an argument. But when I'm walking this way and I'm walking toward my own sin and living for myself... And then I turn from my sin. I'm also doing what? Turning to someone. So I'm actually doing... Which one happens first? Neither. It's the same act. Repentance and faith is the same thing. It's not the same thing, but it's the same moment. The moment you turn from your sin, you can't turn to someone else's sin. You're either in your sin or you're not. So when you turn from your sin, the only thing... That makes a human being turn from their sin is faith in Jesus, right? So in that moment, that's what it means to repent and believe. That's why they're put together all the time. Um, you're never just told to repent and you'll be saved. You repent and you believe because it's the same thing. And in the New Testament, the New Testament writers, the apostles, they would never have had this argument at all. They understood it as the same thing. It, it happens at the same time. You turn from your sin, but you turn to Jesus. Why? Because when you turn from your sin, you've got to turn somewhere. And if you say, well, what if someone turned from their sin and turned to Buddha? You don't get to turn from your sin and turn to Buddha. Because you turn from your sin and turn to Buddha, you never turn from your sin. The only time you turn from your sin is when you turn to Jesus. So it's the same thing. So repent and believe. So um, the moment that you come under conviction of sin, you respond in faith and repentance. That, that's, that's what you do. Okay. So we respond in faith and repentance. And the moment... That one turns to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. This is an act of submission. Because it's an act of faith and repentance that is threefold. Okay, so, because Jesus said in Mark 1, um, believing the gospel. Right, He said, repent and believe in the gospel. So, it's a threefold belief. The word gospel, we use the word gospel a lot. We throw it around. Um, but the truth is sometimes we have to back up and say, well, what does it actually mean? Well, the word gospel actually means good news, which is the, the word euangelion. It, mean, it means good news. So it's there are bad things going on. Hey, there's good news. That's what the gospel is. It's good news. Why? Because you're convicted of your sin. You're in need. You're broken. I'm broken. I can't live up to that standard. That's bad news. So what do we need? Good news. The good news is you don't have to stay that way. You can be saved, right? So that's the good news. Now, when this happens, turning to believe in Jesus Christ has three aspects to it. And I'm going to argue as to why. There are three aspects to it. And I think, I'll say in a minute, I think this is where the confusion comes with a lot of people who talk about how, you know, I, I, I had this experience when I was a kid, but then later I, I had, you know, I think this is where the confusion comes. Because turning to Jesus doesn't just mean going, yeah, I think Jesus is good. Sure, he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. I believe that. Okay. The first thing is that turning to Christ in faith and believing the good news is turning to him and believing that he has done what he said he did. This is the gospel message. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. For I delivered to you as a first importance that which I also received, that Christ died on the cross. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised, 
and that he was seen. That's what he says. Those are the four that's of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15. If you take notes, you can write that down. That he, was, that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he was seen. Those are the four that's. That's the gospel. It, it, that's what Paul says. Unless what? Unless you believed in vain. That's what he says. And then he says a little bit, uh, he says also, if anyone comes and tells you that the gospel is anything other than this, let them be anathema. Let them literally pardon it, but anathema means let them go to hell. He's saying because that's where they're going to go because that's not the gospel. Right? So this phrase or this, this passage here tells us that turning to Christ is believing that he did what he said he did. Okay, Why is that important? Well, first, it's simple. You are not believing the gospel if you believe that Jesus hung on the cross... And then uh, the, the physical strain was so much for him that he passed out. They stabbed him in the side. Then they took him down off the cross. They took him into the tomb. They laid him on the stone. They rolled the, st- the other stone in front of the tomb. And then sometime during those few days, he... The coldness of the stone he was laying on and the, the, the dew in the, in the morning, it, it woke him up. And so he got up, rolled the stone out of the way, and walked out of the grave. Come, hopefully you hear some problems in that. One, that you never heard that he died, which also means he never rose again. Say, that's insane. That's called the swoon theory. It's very popular among liberal Christianity uh, years and years ago. But there are still versions of it around. What that means is they believe that Jesus was sacrificial on the cross. He suffered for you and for me. But you'll hear phrases like, Jesus was an example of what it means to be, uh, what it means to suffer. Or even more so, Jesus was an example of what it meant to be oppressed. That's, that, you'll hear things like that even today. That's just another version of the swoon theory. Okay, it's another version of, uh, of that. Well, here's the thing. That's not what he said he did. He said he died. He said he rose. You have to believe that he did what he said he did. The second part of it is turning to Christ in faith and believing the good news means that you will believe that he will do what he said he will do. So not only do you believe that he did what he said he did, but you'll believe that he'll do what he said he'd do. In Acts 16, 28 through 31, when Paul and Silas were in a Philippian jail, and you remember they sang the song around about midnight, chains fall off, right? Well, the Philippian jailer, he's going to kill himself because he knows he's going to die at the sword anyway uh, if he gets, loses a prisoner. And right as he's about to do it, Paul cries out and says, don't do it, don't hurt yourself, we're still here. So he goes in there and he falls out their feet and he says, basically he says, tell me about this Jesus you've been talking about. Because obviously they've been talking about him. And he responds with, or then he brought him out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they responded with, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Right? That's a promise. So you got to believe that he did what he said he did. You also got to believe that he's going to do what he said he'd do. You believe in him, he's going to save you. As well as anywhere, Acts 13, 36 through 39. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up, as Jesus, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses." Right, So what did he say? He says, you believe in him, you will be saved. You will be set free. Or John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Right, So those are promises. Those are promises. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, when you turn in repentance and faith, you are believing that he did what he said he did. You're also believing that he will do what he said he would do. But there's a third aspect. And sometimes I think this is the one that we get shook on a little bit. 
Because you, you got to believe that he, he did what he said he did. We usually cover that one, right? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Okay, so you believe he did what he said he did. And do you believe that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that he will save you? Yes, okay, so you believe that also. You believe that he will do what he said he would do. But the third one is the one we miss sometimes. It is that turning to faith or turning to Christ in faith and repentance and believing the good news is believing that he is who he says he is. Why do I say that? Well, the reason I say that is this. Well, let me read these first, and then I'll, I'll say that. Acts 16, 28 through 31, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, again, for we are all here. And he said... In verse 31, so it's the same passage I just read, but he said this. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why is this so important? Well, because here's the thing. We talk about turning from our sin and at the same moment, we're turning in faith to Christ. Okay, So those are, they're, they're simultaneous. When you turn to faith in Christ, you're turning, believing that he did what he said he did. Can I ask you a question? Does Satan believe that he did what he said he did? Yes, he did. He was there. Right? Turning to faith in Jesus Christ is believing that he will do... What he says he will do. You think, you think Satan knows that he will save if people believe? Of course he knows. But trusting in Christ also means believing he is who he says he is, which is Lord. Is Jesus Christ the Lord to which Satan submits? No. He doesn't want to. That's why he's Satan. He rebelled against God. So even, that's why James can say what? You believe, you do well. Even the demons believe. And they tremble. But they don't submit. That's the point. I added the submit part, by the way. It's not in your Bible. That's what that means. They don't submit. Why? Because they don't believe in him as Lord they know he's the creator. They know he's God. They know he died on the cross. They know he rose from the dead. They know that he saves people. They know that he heals people. They know that he has power to walk on water and raise the dead. They know he's got the power. They know that he created the universe. They know all that. They just refuse to submit to him as their master. Now, I say, why is that important? It's important. Because the Bible clearly says that how are you saved? Well, of course, you need to believe that he did what he said. You need to believe in the cross and the resurrection, all those things. You do. You also need to believe that he will save you if you put your faith and trust in him. But you also need to believe and understand who you are putting your faith in. He is Lord. He is master. He is ruler. And so when we think about those things, I think this is where the confusion comes. Well, I will say that sometimes this is where the issue comes when it comes to things like child evangelism. I love child evangelism. I think child evangelism is wonderful. Okay? But I heard a guy say it this week, and I think it's a good point. If you're in a room of children, they're all, we'll just say they're all under 10. You're in a room of children, and you say, how many of you don't want to go to hell? Right? Brother Don was with us this week. I heard this illustration. How many of you don't want to go to hell? They all raise their hand, right? I mean, how many in this room don't want to go to hell? Right? Um, okay, but then the next question is, how many of you want to go have ice cream? Why? Why is that important to understand? Well, obviously they want ice cream. Obviously they don't want hell. Here's a question you should ask. How many of you are willing to give up your life and lordship to Jesus, worship, serve him forever, and give up everything that you would desire for what he desires for you? It's not as many hands, right? Because that's, that's what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. 
and you'll hear people say things like this. Well, there was a time in my life where I came to Jesus Christ and I believed in Jesus as my Savior. But then 15 years later, I was, I was dealing with this and I came under conviction of sin. And then I truly made Jesus my Lord. A couple of things. One, technically speaking, you and I cannot make Jesus anything. Okay? He's always been Lord. So what you meant was there was a moment where I recognized him as Lord and submitted to him as Lord. But then the, the difficulty comes, and this is where the crux of the question is. At which moment was this person saved? That's really the question, right? At which moment were they saved? Well, I think from Scripture, I think just in these few verses, and I only used a few. Uh, in these few verses, we can see something. And that is this. That to turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Scripture says you've got to believe that he died on the cross, rose from the dead. You've got to believe that he will forgive you of your sins if you put your faith and trust in him. But you also have to believe that he is Lord and confess that he is Lord. So the simple answer for me in, that, in, that, in this instance is, is that when I was five, I heard a very powerful message on hell. Scared the daylights out of me. Okay? I was in the church that my parents grew up in, uh, visiting my grandmother. And um, I was sitting in the back area, right about back there, kind of shotgun style. And I was sitting in the back and um, heard this message about hell. Stepped out, walked down the aisle, took the preacher's hand. What do you want to do today? I'm going to trust Jesus Christ. I don't want to go to hell. Okay, well, we pray these words after me. I prayed the prayer. Great. My dad was not with us because he had to work. We called him, told him what happened. He was excited. I got baptized at my uncle's church. Um, my dad baptized me at my uncle's church. Five years old. Wonderful. Then when I was 12, I was at a revival meeting. And at this revival meeting, I hear the gospel. I mean, I'm talking the pure, unadulterated gospel. You are broken. You are messed up. You cannot get to God at all. Nothing you do, nothing you say, you cannot make yourself right enough to spend eternity with God. But Jesus did that for you by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. And he offers you forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit if you will repent and believe in him and trust him and submit to him as your Lord and Savior. I heard that. Well, I gripped that pew like nobody's business, knuckles turning white. I made it through like seven verses of just as I am. I mean, just gripping it hard. Why? Well, I'm the pastor's son. And I'm sitting, honestly, the equivalent right there because that's where my mother sat. I'm sitting right there and I'm gripping that pew. I mean, I probably left fingerprints in the pew. I'm gripping it hard. Got done. It was also the end of the revival. It was the last night. Got done. Went home. Laid down in bed. Mom and dad put us to bed. Laid down in bed. Lay in there for a while. Lay in there for a while. And I came under such deep conviction of my sin and a recognition that I could not be made right before God and an understanding that if I were to die in my sleep, I would open my eyes in hell. And an understanding that I did not want that and I needed God's forgiveness, I needed God's grace, I needed God's mercy and the only way I was going to get that was by turning away from my sin and being willing to put my life in Jesus' hands. And I didn't know what to do. So I got up out of bed, which if, if your household was like mine, that was like taking my life into my own hands in that moment. I walked out. I walked down the hallway, and I walked out the front door because my dad was outside under the carport working on my mom's dryer, trying to get it fixed. And I walked out, and he said, What are you doing out of bed? And I told him. And he laid down all of his tools, walked over to the front of the carport. We sat down in the front of the carport. We talked for about 30 minutes or so. I don't know, an hour. I don't remember how long it was. He just explained the plan of salvation to me again, helped me understand a little bit and said, are you ready and willing to give your life over to Christ for him to be your ruler, him to be your master, him to be your Lord? And at that moment I was. And I prayed right there at the front of that house on Glendale Avenue in Dayton, Texas. And I received the Lord Jesus Christ in that moment when I was 12 years old. And I was baptized a few weeks later, and I was called to the ministry three months after that. 
And I preached my first sermon eight months after that. And here's the thing. All of that to say, it's not uncommon. Because what this is called, many times what we're confused about, and it, it, of course I was five and then 12, the numbers don't matter, actually. I mean, your numbers could be 17 and 30. It, it doesn't matter. So John Wesley, which John and Charles Wesley wrote a lot of hymns and things like that. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, founders of the Methodist Church. John Wesley referred to this issue as what we call a quickening short of regeneration. Um, Dr. Criswell used a little bit of an easier phrase. Dr. Criswell called it, a step toward God. Okay. Um, it's very important that we understand this. The moment that a person turns from their sin and turns to Jesus Christ in faith, believing that he did what he said he do, uh, what he did, that he will do what he said he would do, and that he is who he says he is. And that moment, that is the moment of what scripture refers to as justification okay that's the moment that you are justified before the lord you've probably heard this before but the easiest way to remember what justification means is you are justified it is just as if i'd never sinned justified you are made right before god you are made right just you're made right you're made righteous because of why you're made righteous in that moment because in that moment he takes your sin away and he hands you his righteousness so you're made right before god that's justification. That is the moment where previous to that moment, if you had died, you would go to hell. After that moment, if you died, you would spend eternity in heaven. That's the easiest way I can think to describe justification. So it's very important to understand. But then Paul actually refers to two other things in Scripture as salvation, which is sometimes confusing. Paul actually will say things like, you have been saved. Then elsewhere he says, you are being saved. And then he will say things like, and then you will be saved. Well, that's, okay, Paul, which one is it? And the answer is yes. It's all three. The words we use, the theological words we use is, for those, when you have been saved, that's justified. That's that moment of salvation. But then you are being saved is the word we use, sanctification. It means to be made holy. Okay? So you are being sanctified. You are being made holy. This is why when someone comes to faith in Christ and someone is, uh, comes to faith in Christ and they're baptized, and everything, we don't believe that in that moment that person is supposed to be perfect. Right? We don't believe in that moment. I, I had a friend, I, I shared this I think when I came uh, in one of our Q&As, but I had a friend when I was younger, I desperately desired for him to come to faith in Christ. I wanted him to come to church. And we were in high school. And I wanted him to come to church. And he finally came to church. Right? And the morning he came to church, just so happened, my dad was preaching, the, I mean, just straight the gospel. It was just an evangelistic message. And at the end of it, he got up and came forward. So did several other people. So dad's counseling with them. And so some of the men in the church, deacons, stood up and kind of walked over and were counseling with other people. And, and then, so they counseled, and they wrote they took cards down and everything. And then after it's over, my dad, you know, he said, like, we're so excited about the, what the Lord's doing today. This is John, and this is so on. And he's just naming these people. And then he said, I won't say his name, Brother So-and-so, um, can you tell us a little bit about this young man that's come forward? And he said, well, this young man's come forward, said he wanted to put his faith in Jesus Christ this morning. He wants to, he, you know, he knows he's a sinner. He wants to put his faith in Jesus Christ. And we're just excited that he wants to follow him in believer's baptism. And we will totally do that as soon as he gets a haircut. Not a made-up story, okay? It's the last time he ever set foot in our church. It's the last time he would ever talk to me about the gospel. He remains my friend to this day. We're still friends on Facebook. But it was the last time he, that I know of, it's the last time he ever set foot in a church except the day he got married. All that to say, we believe in justification by grace through faith. We believe that the moment that someone puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they are saved. We also believe in sanctification, which is the process by which people become more like Christ and less like them old, their old selves. They're sanctified. The word means holy, made holy. 
So they are made holy. That's a process. Anybody in here holy? If you're willing to raise your hand and say you are, we should talk later about whether you are or not. It means to be made holy. It's a process. right? Then there will come a day, praise the Lord, there will come a day where either Christ returns or you and I are taken from this mortal earth and we are placed in heaven eternally with God the Father. We are given a new body and a new name and we are made saved in that moment. Why? No longer need to be made holy. We are now holy in Christ. So that is called being glorified. So justified, sanctified, glorified. It means you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. So which one is it? It's all three. It's a process. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, at the moment the believer comes to faith in Jesus Christ, at that moment of justification, that moment where you were not righteous, now you are. You were in your sin, now you are not. You were not forgiven, now you have been forgiven. Paul says in Ephesians, you were far from God, now you have been brought near. You were not a part of the family of God, you were orphaned from the family of God, you have now been adopted as a son or daughter of God. That, that moment is also the moment in Scripture where you receive the Holy Spirit. So when, when we repent and believe, according to the Lausanne Covenant, when we repent and believe, God gives us the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. In that moment, God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your soul, in your self. In Romans 5, 5, he's, re he's referred to as what? He's referred to as the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, very important. Why? Because if he wasn't the gift, he's something you earned, and that's a problem. From the very beginning, every, it's all a gift. So it's a gift. You, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's important that we also recognize, this isn't really a tangent, but it's important that we also recognize that nowhere in Scripture are we told to seek the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I don't know what you mean. And that's true. You might not know what I mean, but there are some in this room, I'm certain, who know what I mean. You're not told to seek the Holy Spirit. You are never told to get more of the Holy Spirit. We are told to let the Holy Spirit have more of us. We are told to be controlled by the Spirit, or in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, which is the dissipation, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. That means don't be controlled by some outward influence. Instead, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Right? That's, that's the command. So it's not about how much of the Holy Spirit you can get. It's about how much of the Holy Spirit, you, or how much of yourself you are giving to the Holy Spirit. This is actually not a part of justification. This is a part of sanctification. So, what's the conclusion? Well, the conclusion is, at the moment of one's salvation, this is when they came to a place where they understood their sin, recognized their need for a Savior, Believed in the gospel, which is what? What he said he did, he did. What he said he will do, he will do. And who he says he is, he is. You believe that. Then you make a conscious decision to turn away from your sin and the state that you are currently in in your life and turn in repentance and faith toward Jesus Christ. This is where you become... Now, oh, that's, that's what I'm saying. So there, this is what may happen. That's that what I was calling earlier a quickening short of regeneration or as Dr. Chris will call it, a step toward God. This is where you become sensitive to the message of Christ um, and the things of God. You, you hear the message of the gospel, you think, wow, it's terrible, he died. You're saying he died for me, that's awful. He rose, rose from the dead, that's That's amazing. And you're saying he'll give me eternal life and I don't going to have to go to hell? That's also awesome. Really cool. That, that in and of itself, by itself, is not salvation. Because even the demons understand all of that. The difference is when you come to a place where you say, 
I understand, I hear all that. Now again, children, this is why it's so beautiful. Because what does it require? It requires a childlike faith. Right? That's what Jesus said. Unless, anyone, if you, unless you believe like them, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Why? Well, because when a child is standing on the edge of a pool and dad is in the pool, and it's kind of far, and dad's saying, jump to me, right? Children, by and large, don't stand there and go, okay. Now, I know he said he'd catch me. Hmm. And he's caught me in the past. I've seen him catch other people. So, I mean, he will probably do what he says he'll do. And I mean, he, probably, he did what he said he did. What does the child do? He sees dad. What does he He just jumps. Why? Because the most important thing, yes, he will do what he said he will do. And yes, he did what he said he did. But the most important is, I know who that is. And I trust him. And I'm willing to put my life in his hands. That's salvation. That's the moment of salvation. Anything short of that, you didn't jump. Anything short of that, you didn't leap. And anything short of that, he didn't catch you. You're still standing on the side going, hmm. So why is this important? It's important because I would argue that there are many who have had this happen. And part of the part of the confusion that we've created, and I don't mean we Eastwood, I'm gonna say we preachers have created over the years, is that we will say things like, Well, Jeremy, you walked forward and you gave your life to Christ when you were five, and then you were baptized. And then when you were 12, you came under deep conviction of sin. And so I come and say, well, son, you, you pray. did you pray the prayer? I prayed the prayer. Were you baptized? I was baptized. Well, then you're saved. Well, then why do I feel a conviction of sin? Well, you feel conviction of sin because you need to repent of your sin and rededicate your life to the Lord. The, the problem is, is that there, there are some re-words in Scripture. I mean, one of them would be resurrection. That is a re-word, technically. Regenerate. Redemption. Repentance. But I'm hard-pressed to find the word rededicate even in Young's Analytical Concordance. There, there, is, no, there is repentance. There is when a believer, just, a believer steps off the path and walks into sin. What do you need to do? You need to repent. You need to turn away from that and get right with God. That, that's the truth. But in the end, the, the message that I needed to hear when I was 12 was not, oh, you were already saved, you just need to rededicate your life. The message I needed to hear when I was 12 was, you didn't get saved when you were five. And now, do I believe that it's possible for a five-year-old to fully understand and be saved? Absolutely. Not this five-year-old, but others. I do believe that. And so what happens is, is that I th- the question I find more often than not is not, so am I saved? It's, I'm just conf- I'm bothered by it. I've always been bothered. I've always had this issue. I've always had this whatever. And the reason is because when you were younger, this happened. It was that quickening, short regeneration or that, that step toward God, which is great. Th- those are both wonderful. It just, it, it's, not, it's not salvation. But then later on down the road, when you were 12 or you were 17 or you were 20 or whenever else, you came under conviction of sin. You recognized your need for a Savior. You put your faith and trust in Him alone for your salvation, recognizing Him as your Lord and your Master. And you did that. And that's awesome. And you were told in that moment that that's really great that you rededicated your life to the Lord. And then you go on about your life because, well, why? Well, because you rededicated your life. But and you, and you, here's the deal. In one sense, you feel assurance of salvation because you should. Because the scripture says that when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into your soul. And what does he do? The Spirit cries aloud with our spirit, 
Abba, Father. Which means that God sends His Spirit to give you assurance of your salvation. You know He's your Father. Why? Because the Holy Spirit testifies that in your soul. When it's deep down inside, you stop and you say, Am I a believer? And the answer is, contrary to everything my brain is telling me right now, yes. I am one. I don't know, because it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You, you know you are. But you still say, I just struggle sometimes. I feel like I'm just not walking in sync. I'm not walking in step. I don't understand. Here's the, and I know this is a simple, and some people may even see it as oversimplistic, but I don't, I don't think it is. When I was five years old, I walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, and I was baptized. When I was 12 years old, I believe, I, 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 I do, I genuinely believe I came to faith in Jesus Christ that, that moment. Even if it would have been misinterpreted and I was told that I had rededicated my life to the Lord, that's awesome, now you live for Jesus. Well, then what happens? In my mind, I believe... I was saved when I was five, and then I was baptized, and then I, repent, I, I rededicated my life, and I'm just living my life now. And then I'm struggling to figure out why I feel like I'm not walking in obedience with the Lord. You know why? Because the first act of obedience for a believer is believer's baptism. You're supposed to get baptized after your salvation. And that can be really hard sometimes. And that can be why you feel like you're confused or you're walking out of step or you're in disobedience. Because in, in, a, in a broad sense, I'm not saying actively in the sense that you intended it, but in a broad sense, you, you actually are walking in disobedience. Once you believe in Jesus Christ, you're supposed to submit to believer's baptism. Well, in the scenario, if I had believed that I had, re, if I had been told I had rededicated my life, then technically I lived the rest of my life with what? My baptism, in the words that we use at my former church, I still think it's a good way to say it. I, at this point, I live my life, and I'm, a, I'm saved. If I died, I'd go, to he, I'd go to heaven. I know I would. But in that moment, I'm walking in disobedience. Why? Because my baptism is on the wrong side of my salvation. Because I didn't get saved when I was five. I got saved when I was 12. I tell this illustration sometimes. I had a man... This was years ago, not even in my former church, years ago, who came to me and he said, I'm really struggling um, with some stuff, and, which was fine, spiritually. And he said, I'm just confused. I said, okay, well, talk, talk to me. And he said, I'm just confused about my, you know, my salvation and, and, and where I am with the Lord. I said, okay, well, usually we'll always say, tell me your testimony. Tell me how you got saved. You know, tell me about your relationship with Christ. So he began with, you know, I'll, I'll kind of shorten the story, but he essentially began with, he said, hey, when I was nine, I was at church with my grandmother, and I, I walked out, I prayed a prayer, I gave my life to Christ, was baptized. Then when I was 13, I kind of fell, fell in with a bad crowd at school. Then I just went all through middle school, high school, didn't go to church, and uh, I got into drugs. I got out of drugs because I joined the Marine Corps. I was in the Marine Corps for six years or however long. And, and then I, and while I was in the Marine Corps, I got married and divorced twice. I, and the reason I got divorced both times is because I was, honestly, I was sleeping around on my wife. And, um, and then I got out of the Marine Corps and I actually remarried the woman that I married the first time. And then we got divorced because I cheated on her. And then I went about eight years as a bachelor um, and then I married the woman that you know now as my wife. We got married, and, but I cheated on her two or three times, fell into drugs and everything. But then someone convinced me about a year or two years ago um, to come to church with them, to an event. Preacher was preaching. I was convicted of my sin and my need to get right with God. And I believed for the first time that I needed to really put my life in Jesus' hands. And, and so I, that day, I turned away from my sin. And I put my life in Jesus' hands. And I rededicated my life. And now I'm struggling 
to feel like, struggling to understand why I feel like I'm walking in disobedience with the Lord. We'll say his name's John. That's not his name. But I said, John, kind of walked through some of this with him. I said, John, so what is your struggle exactly? He said, well, my, I don't know. I just feel like I'm not in sync with God. I feel like I'm not. I don't know, like, like I'm missing something, like I haven't done something, I, like, like I'm, 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 in, I'm in disobedience, but I, I don't know what, I mean, I read my Bible, I serve the Lord, I'm here, and he was, he was faithful, godly man, right? I said, well, if you were to share your entire testimony in 10 seconds, what would it be? He said, when I was nine, I got saved and I was baptized, and then when I was 45, I rededicated my life. And I said, here's the reason I think you're confused. And, and I said, if you think I'm wrong, you can laugh in my face and walk out. I said, but I think the real issue is, if I was to tell your salvation story in 10 seconds, it would be, John, you went, to, you went to church with your grandmother when you were nine. You walked an aisle, you prayed a prayer, and you were baptized. Then you lived like a profligate for over 40 years. And then you came to church one day, heard the gospel. You were convicted of your sin, and you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And now you feel conviction of sin. Why? Because you've been depending for over a year and a half that your first baptism was what, and you're not walking in obedience with the Lord and following in believer's baptism and declaring to the world. And he looked at me, and I was like, he's going to slap me probably and tell me that I'm wrong. And he looked at me and he said, I've talked to several people about this. You're the first person that's ever said that to me. He said, it's just what I think. I, I think I can prove from Scripture he said, well, the thing is, you're the first person that said to, me, said to me what I already knew to be true, but I was afraid to admit to everyone else. And I said, well, brother, Jesus said, if you're afraid to admit me before others, I won't admit you before my Father in heaven. You have not declared to the church and to the world that you have trusted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And I said, frankly, if there are people in that room that say, wait, I've known him since he was a kid. He's a Christian if anybody is. And you are nervous that they're going to think, what on earth? I mean, if, if John's not a believer, maybe I'm not. I said, John, would you please do me a favor and do it? So that they'll question it too. Why? Because it's important that we work out our own salvation, according to Scripture, in fear and in trembling. Why? Because all the way back to the very beginning of what I said. This is not important for you to understand for tonight. This is important for you to understand for eternity. And walking with Christ. So the truth is, the reason I talked about all that, kind of was my story more than anything. But, but walking through all that, there may be some in this room, you, you fall in all different portions of that. You may have heard this tonight and say, I've never trusted the gospel. I need to believe Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I'd love to talk with you. Maybe you're in this room and you say, you know, I believe that I got saved at this point, but I haven't, been, I haven't followed the Lord in believer's baptism. I do. Not just because I'm Baptist, but because I'm biblical, I actually think that's important. Because it is the first step of obedience. Why do I think it's so important? Look, it's so important that the Son of God modeled it for us. It's that important. Martin Luther said that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you know the number one thing you should be able to look back with fondness toward in your life? When things get hard, things get difficult, you're tempted by sin, all of those things. You know what he said to look back on? He does not say look back on when you prayed to receive Christ. He doesn't say look back on when you walked an aisle. He said every believer should be able to look back on the day they were baptized. Why? Because at least when I do it, I'm not saying it's the only way to do it, but when I do it, what did everybody cry out before they're baptized? Jesus is Lord. And then I say, my brother or sister, on your profession of faith in him, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism in the likeness of his death, and raised to walk in newness of life. Right? That is the most beautiful picture of salvation. And that is a declaration to the world that Jeremy went down in the grave and the new Jeremy has come up in Christ.
And I think that it's important that we all understand that. And you say, well, all you did was create more questions in my mind. Good. Ask them. Because it's really important. Because I can tell you the greatest truth in my life, the greatest thing in my life is this. Is that I know that I know that I know that if I drop dead right now, I'd open my eyes and see Jesus. Do you know that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for each person here. I thank you for the time you've given us tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would move in the hearts and minds of all of us. Lord, that you would help us to recognize that this is extremely important. And Lord, may we be made right with you for your glory alone. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.